Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Taimur Ezhari. I am joined, as always, by Benjamin Red. Uh, how are you doing, Ben? I'm good. Uh, we've got a really, really interesting podcast this week. We've got Asad Debian, who is the co-founder of the Herbal uh, Initiative, which basically is this open data. They they go out, uh, get all of this information that should be in the public domain and put it there. Uh, so we'll be speaking to him in a little bit. First off, though, we've got a lot of news to get through, Timo. Just to start things off with coronavirus, we're doing actually okay. The numbers have gotten even better since last week. Right now, the seven-day average is around 2,000 new cases each day, which is roughly like th this is a good number, right? But let's put it in perspective. This is roughly where we were at, uh, like sort of over the Christmas holiday at the very end of December, right when things were picking up. So it's not like Lebanon's out of the woods or anything like that. The ICU numbers are also good. We're down to 774 people in ICU, which is down to sort of mid-January levels when things, when ICU numbers were really skyrocketing. So we're also better on that front. But there are still, you know, two to four dozen people dying every day from COVID-19 in Lebanon. So clearly not out of the woods yet. And as far as vaccines go, that is still going very slowly. You know, there's something like 340,000 doses that have been given total. So basically somewhere, you know, a bit over 100,000 people have been fully vaccinated. And then you've got another bit over 100,000 who have gotten one dose. So still a very, very small portion of the population that has been vaccinated. And with that, we also see the likelihood and and continued moves towards perhaps the private sector moving in a bit more on this and individual institutions as well uh, signing deals this week. For instance, uh, we had news that eight universities here signed deals with the health ministry to buy doses of the Pfizer uh, BioNTech vaccine, you know, for their uh, faculty and students, and and that's outside of just like the normal public program. So yeah, so and and we expect to see more of this sort of private institutions, private vaccines, that sort of a thing ramping up more as the public program continues to plot on quite slowly. So speaking of things going slow, we had the a development in the Beirut port blast investigation this week. Uh, we had four security officials and two civilian employees released more than eight months after the uh, after they were detained following the explosion. Nineteen remain in custody, and this is the first major development, if we can call it that, that we've seen since. Uh, Fadi Sawan's dismissal, the former judicial investigator. He was dismissed in February, replaced with Tariq Bitar. But we we don't really know where Tariq Bitar is, is going at this point. Um, it's fair to say a lot of the momentum has died down since uh, the former investigator charged the prime minister and former officials with involvement in the blast. We don't have a sense where, where Bitar is going. This week, we also had the former head of the, the of Lebanon's cyber crimes unit uh, acquitted of charges in a 2018 case uh, where she allegedly fabricated charges against actors Yad Aitani, uh, saying that he was an Israeli collaborator. So Suzanne Hajjahbesh, the, the former head of the Cyber Crimes Bureau, has been acquitted on those charges. Uh, she has been sentenced to two months of prison on a on a more minor charge. Uh, but basically, we we have this top security official now being let off, even though there there is 
widespread allegations that there was uh, that 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 she was in fact part of this, and there were even voice notes showing her conversation with an employee at the bureau, kind of uh, seeming to you know t tell him to go ahead and fabricate these charges. What has happened is that Eitani was imprisoned for about a hundred days. His life has been ruined, and and we see few consequences for that. Yeah, yeah. So basically, they ended up convicting the lower-ranking person in this case and letting uh, Susan Hashobesh. Well, well, I guess I guess she got uh, something like two months uh, sentence on a lesser charge of basically not bringing her underlings' uh, doings, crimes to not reporting them to anybody else. That was. Uh, the reporting that came out of the military tribunal this week. So this is another one of those things, you know, this is actually the second trial that Hashabesh and El-Ghabash have uh, been through. And so we, we assume like the, that this is probably at this point a done deal, but who knows. In, in other news, in other judicial news, a lot, a lot has come out uh, in the past week just uh, surrounding the central bank governor, Riyad Saleme. Uh, we know that the Swiss in, uh, Attorney General's office has been investigating him. A lot of details came out this week about that and about supposed commissions on Eurobond and uh, financial instrument sales from BDL going to a company that is domiciled, I believe, in the British Virgin Islands in that, and whose actual owner, uh, beneficial owner, is Raja Saleme, who is the brother of Riyad Saleme. Coincidence uh, of which, coincidences, eh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, also this week, we reported Alvin Shakoa at Lorient Today about Raja Saleme's real estate holdings in the UK. So we know that he owns some $10 million worth of real estate there. And so all of this stuff really leads to questions, right? Like, so all, all of it, obviously, there could be easily like a, a perfectly legal explanation uh, for all of this wealth. But the fact that this wealth does exist and that these contracts existed between uh, BDL and this company, it, it does raise a lot of questions about potential corruption or you know how, how exactly did all of this money, how was it transferred? How was it used? Was this actually done in the public interest or was there something else going uh, on there? And we know not only are the Swiss looking into this now, we know that based on the Swiss investigation, now Lebanese authorities are looking into the same issue. UK authorities are doing sort of like a preliminary deciding whether they want to open a, a, an investigation as well. We're obviously sort of at the beginning stages of this. A lot more is uh, quite likely to come out about this. And uh, as far as Riyadh Saleme goes and the financial system here goes in general, we also had really big news this week. Uh, Judge Ghada Aoun going and raiding the offices of a very large exchange, uh, exchange shop in Aukar uh, here in Lebanon, uh, twice actually, uh, I believe it was what, Friday and Saturday, uh, she went. And this happened after she was relieved of duty, basically, for all financial investigations. The Lebanon's top prosecutor, Ghassan Oidet, he essentially fired Rada Aoun, who is the sort of Mount Lebanon district attorney, from doing these kinds of cases, but she went ahead and did them anyway. And people are really pointing to this right now uh, as proof of politicization of the judiciary.
Yeah, Radahon is known to be in, uh, you know, her last name kind of gives it away, eh? I mean, the, she's sort <laughs> yeah. of in, in President Michel Aoun's uh, court, whereas Hassan Oidat is uh, quite clearly also uh, in, in Hadidi's sphere, the former prime, the, the actual, the prime minister designate, Saad Hadidi. Uh, Saad Hadidi actually put forward Oidat's name to be prime minister at one point. Uh, in, in the past year. And Awaidat uh, also has connections with various other politicians. His sister is Mazi, married to Ghazi Zaiter, who is a senior Amal movement uh, minister. So, so there's lots of reason to, to sort of uh, look, into, look at this from a political perspective. And there's a greater sort of political battle of Hariri, who, who backs the central bank governor, Riyad Salemi, uh, versus Michel Aoun, who has sought to oust uh, Riyad Salemi in the past and, and is, uh, is known to have some mixed feelings uh, about Riyad Salemi, although President Michel Aoun is the one who proposed that Salemi's mandate be extended, I believe, in 2018. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, regardless of whatever the facts of the matter are, the facts of the case are, essentially, everybody sees this as, as, as politics. And so that means... Even if Radaon is completely in the right here, which I, I don't know, honestly, whether she is or not, there is a cloud of suspicion of political motivation that hangs over essentially everything she does and essentially everything that Hassan Oedat does and, and uh, a number of other judges as well, uh, which is really unfortunate. You know, if you actually want to get to the bottom of things, if you want investigations to happen if you want the truth to come out the lebanese judiciary seems very ill-equipped to actually be able to do that yeah and it's never been more important because the country is going through just an unprecedented economic you know socio-economic crisis it would it's it would be more important than ever to sort of assign responsibilities for this right i mean we're in a situation now where just in the past week it seems fuel shortages have suddenly become one of the main issues. I, I couldn't find fuel for several days. Uh, last weekend, from, from Saturday till about Monday, it was just impossible to find fuel anywhere. And the energy minister came out and said that this was due to smuggling in Syria because of subsidies in Lebanon that allow huge opportunities for arbitrage. Uh, you can make basically several times the, the cost of the fuel if you cross the border and set it in Syria. But we know that one of the reasons is also the, the currency crunch in the country and, and the, the you know, decreasing availability of hard currency uh, from from the uh, BDL to to support to the purchase of fuel at the subsidized rate, and that is having a huge effect on on people who are struggling to get to places, and increasingly, you know, this panic is setting in that basic goods like this can go missing, and and we continue to see these scuffles at supermarkets over subsidized goods, be it oil or sugar, and tragically, one man in Tripoli was actually killed, shot dead this week while food was being handed out in Tripoli two people were also injured and so this is the kind of this is the kind of chaos that is the result of this uh, this this crisis that the country is going through yeah and and i think it's um this whole issue with smuggling it's it's quite interesting and with fuel because you talk to fuel distributors and where where do they place the blame they blame bdl for not processing payments for imports. But then you go and talk to somebody like the energy minister and he blames Syria, essentially, you know, which to me, you know, like if you just do some back of the envelope ca calculations, 
if fuel were being smuggled to Syria in huge quantities, I, I think we would know that. We would see the trucks lined up. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe the energy minister is absolutely correct and that this is a really huge thing and that's where all of the fuel is going. But I have my doubts just because, well, come on, we would we would see it probably a lot more. Yeah, and, and also this is not a new thing. Uh and and it's it's we've we've had some kind of uh, fuel shortage actually for almost two years now. I remember before the uprising in 2019, we were talking about this. And so it's uh, it's definitely uh, n- not entirely due to some drastic spike in, in smuggling to Syria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this week, we also had really big, I guess, political news to talk about. We'll, we'll just blaze through it quite quickly, though, because, I mean, nothing really came out of it, right? We had uh, David Hale, who is one of the top diplomats uh, at the State Department at the United States. He was in town. He's also a former ambassador to Lebanon. So he knows the country very, very, very well. And he came here for talks with basically all of the top political leaders here. We don't we don't know what all was said, though, behind closed doors. But at least out in the open, we, we don't see any movement yet. Uh, we don't see any results from this, which I, I think sort of illustrates, you know, every, everybody likes to talk about how, oh, Lebanon is at the mercy of all of these foreign powers. And that is certainly true to a degree. But then there's also just like that ignores the fact that Lebanese politicians can actually, there are internal things that are stopping the formation of a government, for instance, that are stopping certain reforms from happening. And those really are internal battles that have to be bridged in order for any sort of movement to happen on the local political scene. It's not just up to, well, if America and Saudi decide it, you know, or if, you know, Iran and Saudi decide it, then uh, everything works. Although that helps. Yeah, I think one of the the key sort of lessons uh, is that when when people are crying conspiracy, as they often do in this country, more often than not, it turns out that that the ones saying that there's some kind of conspiracy are actually themselves the conspiracy against the country. Um, I think that's sort of <laughs> yeah. the, the lesson of, of these past two years. Um, but yeah, we are seeing a lot of movement. We're seeing, you know, Hadidi continuing his sort of global tour uh, with with a trip to Moscow where he met with the foreign minister Lavrov. He had a phone call with Putin, which is interesting, you know, that he was in Moscow, but Putin still didn't meet with him in person. And you know, spoke about getting vaccines and, and Hariri's statement by his office said that Putin supported the idea of, you know, this expert government that can implement reforms. But really, we, we're not seeming to go anywhere in cabinet formation. Last we heard, there was this tacit agreement to have a 24 minister cabinet where no particular party gets a blocking third, which was the issue because that's what President Michel Aoun and his and his uh, son-in-law Gibran Basile were seeking to do. Apparently, they had sorted that Allegedly, out at twenty-four. They deny it. They deny it, but it's quite clear that that is what hap- what's happening. I mean, uh, it's 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 sort of. I mean, yeah, I, I, I you know, th- th- they can deny it, but but it, it, to me, it, at least, it's it's clear that that is what was happening. And, and, and this and, is kind of a replay of uh, the cabinet formation crisis uh, after the 2018 elections, right? Which actually this week on Thursday, we will actually pass 
surpass that crisis in length. You know, it will, uh, I believe on Thursday, it will be, Lebanon will be 255 days without a government. The 2018-2019 cabinet crisis only lasted for 254 days. So we're about to surpass that one. We're not yet to Taman Salem levels, but we are like, this has been very lengthy, uh, a very lengthy process. And as of right now, it doesn't look like the pieces are in place for there to be a deal, at least not anytime soon. Okay. And now we want to turn uh, to our main topic today. And joining us for that is Asad Tevian, who is the co-founder and managing director of the Herbal uh, Initiative. Uh, Asad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, we're super happy to have you on. Uh, you know, Assad is is you know one of the OG activists in Lebanon. He's you know since since the 2015 Use Think protest, which he was a major figure in, um, and and more lately he has uh, developed this uh, Gherbel initiative, which basically provides information on all kinds of things uh, that that relate to the Lebanese state, be it finances, customs data. You name it. So we're extremely excited to have him on. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Assad, for being here. Thank you, Taimur. Thank you, Ben. It's my pleasure as well. So walk us through just a little bit how you got started with Herbal. What was it that in the first place made you decide, okay, no, we need something like this here in Lebanon. Otherwise, uh, politics will remain the same. What What was it that, that brought you to actually founding Herbal and doing this? Sure. So there are a few reasons that made me and a friend of mine think of starting up Gerbal Initiative. Um, the idea is that we stormed the streets for a decade now. Most of the time we went down with our hearts uh, open and we tried to challenge the system and to show the people of the toll of corruption that is going on. But most of the time we spoke from our heart, we spoke with feelings, and we didn't really have tangible documents among our hands. The second reason is that in 2017, there is the access to information law that was passed in the parliament. And I remember I was being invited to one of the sessions in which representatives of ministries, some MPs, and some of the monitoring authorities were there. And they were discussing among each other whether this law is applicable or not. And back then, it hit me. It's like, I'm not going to wait and see if theoretically this law is happening so I decided that in a few months from there, uh, I wanted to send requests of information, official ones, to different Lebanese administrations and start asking them for information. And that idea started to boil bit by bit until I came up with the name and uh, we chose Gerbal because Gerbal in Arabic means sift. And this is what we are actually doing now. We're sifting through information, trying to find what is, uh, where the grains are and what the hay is around it. And um, in 2018, we we launched Gerbal, and I'll tell you more about it in a few. Yeah, it's it's kind of a like a crazy but such a simple idea, you know. As as a journalist, when you when you look for information in Lebanon but in other countries, you kind of expect that there'll be resistance. You kind of expect that you have to search for it, and 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 that it might be very difficult to find. What you've done here is basically decide I'm going to walk in through the front door. I'm gonna just ask for information because the law says that I can do that and and I'll see what I get. And and so I guess the question is what do you get and do public administrations in this country actually respond and give you the information you want? Uh, I know, you know, we, we have some personal experience with for, for example the finance ministry that was ex- per, like particularly bad at this. Uh, wh- what was your experience when you started doing this? 
So in 2018, we started. In the beginning, it was very hard for us to understand what are public administrations. There was no real mapping of these administrations in the Lebanese state. So there was only this website, Dawlati, that was developed by Omsard, but it was non-functional back then. And a lot of these administrations were not listed. So what we needed to do is to actually create the first mapping of these administrations, try to understand which ones that do the law apply on them. If there are ministries, what directories are beneath them? If there are other uh, independent institutions, who do they reply to, whether financially or as monitoring body? And it took us some time to paint this uh, sketch. And back then, we were able to locate 133 administrations. So we went and mm. sent them a formal request, and it was a very simple one. We called it a basic study report, because what we only asked for were two simple things. According to the Access to Information Law 28 over 2017, you are supposed to uh, appoint someone as a focal point for access to information. So may you tell us who is this person? And the second thing, also according to the law provisions, you're supposed to have a website or an online portal where you publish decisions in. And can you please provide us uh, with these uh, data? We thought that this is going to be a very simple task. The, what we're requesting is very easy. It turned out to be wrong. So out of these 134 administrations we went to, apparently most of them didn't know that the law existed. And this was one year after. So we had to print it on paper, several pages, and take them and have several meetings with them and explain the law for the actual people who are in offices. Well, that's a great start, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And luckily, back then, the paper and the ink was uh, not on the black market rate. (laughs) (laughs) So after doing these extensive meetings with them, and you know, the whole conspiracy theory that starts, who are you, who sent you against us? Why are you only requesting from us? You're not requesting from the others. And then you're trying to uphold your uh, position as being nonpartisan and sticking to facts and numbers. And what we wanted to do is to document every time we went, uh, met them or did a phone call or did any follow up by mail or email or anything. So we basically created a timeline for each administration, mentioning every date that there was correspondence between us. The project ended in nine months, and out of the 133, only 34 administrations responded. That's a 26% ratio. And out of these 34, only 18 of them appointed the focal point for access to information. From the 18, 15 did so only because we asked for it. So imagine there was no Garbal back then, and no one asked them for naming anyone as a focal point. Back then, there was only three or four administrations who actually applied the law before we stepped in. And this was a very interesting insight for us. So in Lebanon, unfortunately, because we all know the situation, it's not enough to pass a law in the parliament. What is needed is to push these administrations to actually fulfill the obligations of the law. And this is why we decided to make our annual uh, our report to become annually and we keep pushing them showing them there is someone who's monitoring their work and then we d- decided to raise the bar a little bit instead of asking simple questions about a focal point and about a website and some of them were very happy that they responded and now they are transparent so we raised the bar and we sent them a formal request for information before the year was done in 2018 and we asked them about their financial statements so we asked them where did you spend your money in 2017? We did that because it was the year before. And because 2017 is a very interesting year in Lebanese politics, because it was the first year a budget was passed since 2005. 
Right. So you're basically a, like doing the atahseb then. You're doing the accounting for the public spending, which is something that hasn't happened in Lebanon, I believe, since, was it Just the, the late 90s? 2004, 2005, right? Something exactly. like that. Yeah. Exactly. So we, as you said, each administration does their financial statement at the end of the year. If you put them all together and you see where they spend their money, the total of them is called the qatahseb which is like the uh, financial records of the whole state. And this hasn't been done since 2005. By the way, every time they pass a budget law, they're actually violating the Constitution. Because the Constitution literally says you cannot pass a budget before doing the statement of account of the year before. And we've been doing budget in 2017, 18, 19, 20. And 21 this year, they haven't passed the budget law yet. So this is like a double violation of the Constitution. Anyway, so we went with this new request for information. And this time, some of the administrations that actually answered us in the first instant, they were like, hey, yeah, but the law does not apply. Well, the law actually applied for you a few months back when you gave us the name of the focal point. When it comes to money, it doesn't apply. And then there was this trend that most of the administrations started using against us. They're like, yeah, we can't give you the answer before there is a a decree that is passed in the uh, government. It, it didn't make a lot of sense because one of the administrations that was telling us that they are awaiting the decree to be passed was the presidency of the, the government. Well, you're supposed to do the decree yourself, so you cannot actually say, I can give you an answer because there is, a, there is no decree that I wasn't doing. So just to be clear, that's the, the prime minister's office was saying this. Yes, indeed. But the funny thing is, when we were requesting for these, this data from some of the administrations, the, the, one of the ministries answered back and said, well, according to this legal opinion from the administrative and legislative body in the Ministry of Justice, uh, we cannot provide you with the information because a decree is needed. And then we thought about it the other way. So there is a legal opinion that is there and it has a reference number, but we cannot contact this administration because they only correspond with state administrations. They, they ask them for legal advice. So we said, okay, let's, let's throw this stone. So we sent a formal request to this legislative uh, body, and we asked them, according to access to information law, you provided a legal opinion under this number. Can you give us a copy about it? In less than a week, we got the copy, and guess what the opinion said? You're going to tell us. It said that there is no need for a decree. The law stands by itself and all administrations are obligated to reply to access to information requests. Hold on. So basically, then then you were lied to. Exactly. By and who exactly? By several administrations. But one of them did this mistake and they uh, referred to this opinion. And their, their answer was incontradictory to what the opinion said. The opinion was very clear. The law stands by itself. It does not need a decree from the government. So essentially, these administrations, or at least one of them, told you, oh, we can't do that based on this opinion that you don't have access to. So you guys went and got access to that opinion from the Committee on Legislation and the consultations in the Ministry of Justice and were able to then push it back to them and say, no, according to this opinion that you cited, that's not the case? Exactly, Ben. We didn't stop there. So everyone, every administration that told us before uh, there is a decree needed, 
we got this legislative opinion, we took a copy of it, and we send it back to them in a formal way as a mail, registered mail, and we told them, so we have an opinion that uh, supports our case getting these documents, and now you should release them, or we're going to handle it by law. So I guess the question then becomes, what happens? Do they start responding? Who are the worst offenders in, in terms of not doing so? And, and who actually did respond? Sure. So what happened in the second report that was released in September 2019, two weeks before the revolution started in Beirut streets, is that the number of answers that we received jumped from 34 to 68. That's a 100% increase. And the administrations that provided us with full data were 33 which means for the first time ever in the Lebanese history, we had financial statements of 33 administrations. Where did they spend their money in the previous year? Who are the most offenders? Well, let's put it this way. You have the biggest three administrations of, of the country, which are the presidency, the president of the state, the government, and the parliament. The three of them, until now, in three different reports, they never gave us the data we requested for. Every time, every now and then, they would use a different legal genre not to give us what we're requesting. And I'm just going to mention this thing. So every now and then, they said the decree, the decree, the decree. So we worked, among others, on pushing the government to adopt a decree that will facilitate our, the work of the administrations in providing data for the people according to the law. Luckily, a decree was voted on a few days before the Beirut explosion. It only went to the presidential palace late 2020. It was signed and then published in the National Gazette. And now there is a decree and no one can say, hey, we can't give you information because we're waiting for a decree. But guess what the government told us? The office of the prime minister told us. What's that? So in the decree, they said you're allowed to get the information, but... In order to give you a copy of the data you're requesting, there should be a a fee that is paid. And we will wait for the Minister of Finance to issue a decision to actually say how much it will cost to give you uh, these documents and how much they will charge you, let's say, on copying this data. So, so they're basically grasping at straws here. I mean, it's sort, it's sort of remarkable in the first place that this was a law passed by parliament, and you said that one of the major offenders was parliament, which didn't respond to your request for information. And then you have the, the cabinet, uh, you know, the office of the prime minister, and the presidency, who are all sort of involved in this. You know, the, the, the cabinet is supposed to pass the decree, the president is supposed to sign it. All of them using this transparency and anti-corruption discourse in public it, it really you know it, it, it hurts our ears the amount that we've heard them speaking about this but then when it actually comes down to it they seem to be really grasping at straws here to not give that kind of information i mean the fact that they would say you have to wait until the finance ministry decides how much you know the fee is for this it really seems a bit like a sort of a, a lame excuse well well i've got a question was this baked into the decree that they passed? Because when we're talking about a decree, we're talking about these same bodies, you know, the, the you know, the Council of Ministers and the the president's office, they're signing off on this decree. Was this new thing that they brought up afterwards about paying a fee and waiting for the finance ministry uh, decision? Was that baked into this decree or were they, were they just grasping at straws? Well, first of all, you got it right. You nailed it. The second thing is, yes, this was baked, but the worst thing is they wanted to bake something bigger, but luckily it didn't pass through. 
they wanted to exclude some administrations from giving the information. And then I know from the background chatter of what happened back then, the presidency wanted to get uh, certain privileges of not providing all the data. Then the prime minister office said, if you have it, then we'll have it. And then other ministries said that we will have the exclusion as well. Luckily, that wasn't passed. But yet they are failing to commit to answer at least our request. Okay, so they, uh, at least certain administrations said, no, we're waiting on this other decision for the Ministry of Finance. How did you guys deal with that? And where did you go from there? So when the revolution started and people started storming down the streets and suddenly there was this public awakening and this call and thrust and thirst for accountability and for for asking bigger questions about governance. So we thought that we need to step in. It is good that we are issuing this report, but the report, most of the time, people will not have access to it or have all the time of the world to read a 400 pages thorough investigation on the response of every administration in Lebanon, which, by the way, increased to 200 administrations a year. So now we send requests not only to ministries, but also to public hospitals, to governance, and even to uh, private companies that operate uh, public utilities, such as Touch, Alpha, and other companies. So we needed to step in and do something else than the report. And it hit us that there is a lot of data there that is covered in Lebanon. But for example, the public budget. The public budget is issued in the National Gazette when the law is passed in the parliament. And it's usually a thousand page uh, document. You can find it in paper or in PDF. And the way they, they frame the budget lines in it is very complicated. So you would have a page that says Ministry X and then uh, Administration Y, and then there is this line and subline, and then there is an explanation for it. And on each page, an A4 page, there are like two significant or three significant numbers in it. And then for each ministry, you need to go 50, 60 pages to understand their budget. And that's for chapter one. Then you have chapter 2A and then chapter 2B. And will it make your life super hard in order to understand how much are uh, the budget lines for this ministry, for example. And this is only for one year. Imagine you wanted to do a comparative analysis on how much the budget lines for the Ministry of Telecom has been changing over the last four or five years. It will literally take six, seven hours of anyone's time. And I'm talking about me who's uh, been involved in this. So for average users, it will take a day to understand this uh, information. And this information is very valuable for people who do public policy or researchers or activists or people who want to actually follow up and hold the people in power accountable. So what we did is we actually went down and we extracted the data and we put it on an Excel sheet. The Excel sheet for the, uh, for the budget is around 4,100 4, lines vertically multiplied by five horizontal lines that explain the name of the ministry, the administration, the line and the subline and the explanation. And then there is the number of Lebanese pounds associated to this line. So it took us for the first budget around a month work, but then it was easier for the other years. And now, if you go to our website, ilgaribal.org, it literally takes seconds to understand how much each ministry gets from the national budget. And then you click on the name, you go for the sub-level, 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 up to five different levels. And then it hit me, wait, 
every time you go into each of the administrations, you will have a line such as stationary. And usually it will be like 10 million Lebanese pounds, 15 million Lebanese pounds, 2 million pounds. It's not a significant number. But the line of stationary is repeated over and over hundreds of times. So we created a search button. And now it's very easy on our website to just type any search term you'd like to have, and you will get the total of the stationary, which, by the way, amounts to $5 million a year, which is 7.5 billion Lebanese pounds. That's in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. And what we did is we also did it in the English language, which does not, is not available in the Ministry of Finance now. Yeah, $5 so million dollars on stationary. Yeah. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is quite a lot for, for the amount of work that's coming out of, uh, <laughs> that's coming out of the Lebanese government. Well, if you think that's a lot, I think you should think twice by just understanding that not only $5 million are spent on stationery, but also we, if I'm just opening the website so that I say a number that I'm very sure of, 143 billion Lebanese pounds, which almost $95 million is for transport allowance granted to public sector employees. That's actually fuel for the cars. So I guess the, the, the question here is, you know, it, yeah. this information is all good and it's, and it's great to have. And I think that, you know, as, as, as you were someone who was one of the leaders of the 2015 New Stink movement, pushing for accountability, for transparency, for an end to corruption, for systemic reform in the country, I, I'm interested whether you see this as a, an, an, an evolution of that. Is this one of the tools in the tool bag of achieving change and have you have you been able to actually see results with this yet i know it's hard to maybe discern impact but i wonder whether you've seen the beginnings of that and what your hopes are for for this initiative thank you for the question but allow me to mention something before i answer that go so, ahead so publishing the state budget is something that is very essential it will help a lot of researchers or policymakers but sometimes you need to publish other data sets which are more important for the public and more important for holding people in office accountable. Take, for example, how much loans and grants we took in Lebanon. This is something where you cannot find on any uh, portal, you cannot find in one ministry, you cannot find at any database that tells you how much loans and grants we've been receiving. So we thought about it the other way. Not all the loans and the grants, but most of them, they need to be institutionalized and they should be legalized. And how is that happening? It happens by the parliament convening, uh, accepting uh, to give, passing a law that allows the government to either sign off on a, con on a um, loan or to receive a grant. And when the parliament does that, usually it should be published in the National Gazette. So what we did is we went through 1,600 issues of the National Gazette since 1990 till the first few months of 2020. And we started extracting every time there was a mentioning of passing a law to accept a grant or a, a loan. And what we were able to gather was an astonishing figure of 702 grants and loans for a value of 13 point something billion dollars. And what we did is we also made it accessible for the public, allowing people to filter by the donor, by the grantee, which administration, which year, the amount of the money, and what the project was for. And we also added from our own side the sectoral analysis. So this grant logically goes to 
agriculture or goes to energy and water or goes to wastewater. And you'll be surprised with some of the figures. For example, the Lebanese state has accepted to take four different loans in four different years from four different entities to clean up the Al-Ghadir River, which now is very famous to be the Costa Brava landfill. So, yeah, it's, it's a river that regularly flows full of plastic or sewage or, you know, insert other form of pollutant. Exactly. And we actually took four loans up to $200 million since 2003 in order to clean it. And is it clean now? Because I'm, I'm sure it's not. No, it is not clean. I don't think so. <laughs> no. So when we did that, it was very astonishing for us to, to show that not only our government is lying to the international community, but also the international community are not doing their due diligence. They're not doing monitoring and evaluation. They're not actually discovering that someone else other than them gave a grant or a loan for the same project before that was not executed. So why are you giving them the money again? And this is not money given in, uh, uh, with good trust. It's actually loan money that we need to pay from it. Uh, we, the tax payers, and we paid with interest. And this is crazy. So answering your question, we, we always wanted to give people different insights and different stories based on facts and numbers. You all remember that a few weeks ago, people stormed into the Tripoli municipality and it, it got burned. A lot of the opinion in the country was blaming the demonstrators for burning a public office. A lot of people were sympathizers and trying to say that they understand those people and they understand their point of view and their frustration. What we do in Gherbal, we don't do with feelings, we go with facts. What we did is we published a data set that we were able to obtain from the, from the municipality of Tripoli itself that clearly shows the, the municipality since 2013 till 2018 was making billions of Lebanese pounds in profit every year. And it was so huge that in one of the years, it was over a 20 billion Lebanese pounds profit. And then the question is, why would a municipality care so much of saving money instead of investing the money in where it should be needed, which is in the people of Tripoli, which we all now all know that Tripoli is one of the poorest cities on the Mediterranean. And in this way, we are able to shift the narrative from a narrative that is based on your opinion and your political affiliation to a narrative that is more based on facts and numbers and questioning the people on authority. Yeah, I think that's an extremely illuminating, illuminating way to, to sort of answer that question, because that is the the place of, of you know, numbers like these that can seem pretty sort of esoteric and a bit even you know hard to relate to reality but but i think that specific issue of of turning uh, transparency into and and targeting sort of these uh, you know these revelations these numbers that you get and being able to provide them in moments like this in moments where you have a narrative being built around a particular incident um, and and countering some of the easy narratives, uh, and, and this can be narratives that swing both ways. So so it's uh, it's uh, I, I think that the Tripoli example is great because what you're basically saying there is over years this municipality didn't invest in the people, and and now when we are in an economic crisis and people burn this municipality down, well here's you know here's where some of that anger may have stemmed from. 
Exactly. And especially then when you look at their spending numbers and you'll see a significant amount of the number is being spent on salaries and not on infrastructure or uh, building roads or providing jobs for the people in their uh, constituency. Another example I'm going to talk about is, you remember in 2019, we had the Minister of Interior, Rayel Hassan, most of the time didn't do a good job, but once mentioned in an interview that she is pro-civil marriage in Lebanon. And that prompted a backlash from the religious institution to a degree that she was summoned to the IFTA, uh, Darul IFTA, and then she had to reclaim her position and say, well, I'm not sure a lot about what I said. And people also were divided pro and against civil marriage. And then we decided to show this figure for the people, which can be found on our Instagram page. According to the budget, we have 11 different religious and spiritual courts and entities who get public funding. And the budget they have is $41 million. At the same time, we have three ministries, which are the Ministry of Environment, Ministry of Youth, and Ministry of uh, Industry. The three of them combined get $25 million from public money. So imagine that. Wow. Yeah. So, so this is why data is very important. And because data is very important, we have been venturing in exposing more and more data and different data sets for the people every now and then. It's a, it's a long process, and we're a very small team, minimum resources. But we, keep to re, we keep releasing new data sets every now and then. So what you can find now, you can find a lot of data on the Ministry of Finance, their statistics, the Banque de Lebon indicators. If you actually go to, this is a mind-blowing thing. That every time I look at this number, it, it, it makes me go crazy, which is if you go and see the foreign currencies in BDL, everyone is talking how much it's declining. And at the same time, there is another data set, which is how much Lebanese pounds are in circulation outside BDL. And before October 2019, there were around 7,305 billion Lebanese pounds outside BDL. Just by the end of this 2020, it was around 31,000 billion Lebanese pounds outside BDL. And actually, in November 2020, if we go with the um, uh, 1,500 Lebanese uh, lira uh, rate, U.S. dollar for Lebanese lira, in November 2020, the amount of money in Lebanese pounds outside BDL for the first time of the history of Lebanon exceeded the foreign currencies inside BDL. And so, and so what does that tell us? Well, I think it does tell us the first thing is there should be a hyperinflation in the market because of how much money is being printed to the streets. It also tells us how much DBDL policies has contributed to the rise of the U.S. dollars because they've been actually printing the Lebanese pounds for the people in order to buy the dollars most of the time in the black market. And also because they wanted them to take their money out of the banks at the rate of 3,900 Lebanese pounds. And it shows you that it's yani, asfuri that we're going on financially now in the country. Yeah, it really does illustrate, I, I, I like that point, the, the degree to which people don't trust the banking system and they want to pull their deposits out. Uh, and how does that work? Well, you pull it out at 3,900, you know, according to BDL Circular 151. And it really goes to show that people just don't trust the financial system, which I think is the big takeaway from that number. I'm going to give you one more example of what data reveals to us and what, what stories do they tell us. So the Ministry of Finance actually issues on yearly basis how much 
we import uh, fuel in weight and in value. They, they publish it on monthly basis, but we also calculated it on yearly basis. So if you look, for example, in, uh, on how much we import fuel for EDL, which is Electricité de Liban, and how much we import fuel for non-EDL imports. So back in 2018, EDL got 1,476 million kilograms of fuel, but it jumped in 2019 to become 6,277 millions of kilograms. This was a four times increase in weight. In value, it was a three times increase because the fuel prices were low that year. But then it makes you think, if we imported enough fuel for EDL four times more than any given year in the years before, why didn't the electricity uh, coverage increase? And what happened to this fuel? Where was this uh, electricity going or this fuel was going? And that is an answer we don't have. And then we look another, on another data set that is published by BDL, which actually tells us how much electricity production is being produced in megawatts, in millions of kilowatts, which is megawatts. And if we look at the numbers, 2019, we actually produced electricity less than 2018 and less than 2017 on a yearly basis. So what happened to this fuel? That's a very good question to start in narratives asking before we start throwing accusations. Oh, we see that fuel is being smuggled. Yes. But before we ask if the fuel is smuggled, can someone explain to us how, why $3 billion of fuel imports have taken place in 2019? Well, I think this sort of like goes to show the the limits, right, of just having access to information. It gives you sort of a step up in understanding certain things. If you can get past all of the challenges and actually get administrations to give you answers, then you still have, you may get a set of numbers that maybe seem to suggest something strange is going on, but you still need more than that, right? Yes, that's true. No, so so I'm curious, uh, at Gerbal, do you guys try to delve in yourselves to this or do you do you need other actors to come in and investigate these things and try to explain these anomalies? So now what we're doing is we're dabbling with both, both ideas. Uh, we're in a few weeks releasing for the first time our version of the story because most of the time what we do is we provide the data. But we never tell the story of the data or we don't or you wouldn't see on our website most of the remarks I just gave you in this podcast or tell you those stories and the narratives and the numbers. Sometimes they go out on the social media, but not all the time. So what first what we're doing is we're actually having in-house tell the story production, which will be coming out every now and then. But we're also collaborating with, our, with a lot of uh, media institutions and hopefully other research institutions. So we, I think you've you've known, but we are now developed this partnership with the Yaskut Hakim al program on Al Jadid, and what we're doing is we're actually going to collect uh, all the properties owned by the current ministers and ex ministers and how much land they have. We're also working with other uh, architects in order to find out the uh, the area of each property they own, and we're trying to build more momentum on not only their names, but also their extended families and their businesses in order to kind of grasp of how much uh, land wealth they have at least. But we're also trying to venture to find other wealth the main politicians have in the country. We also uh, created a partnership with Daraj Media that sometimes 
Uh, we do videos that are published on their uh, platforms. We're always open for uh, uh, researchers and for investigative journalists to join. And so far, we've even submitted tens of requests of information on behalf of other institutions, whether they were research institutions, public policy, investigative journalists. And we've also have been helping with documents and numbers, a set of initiatives that have been going all over the country, such as uh, Save the Bisri Valley, uh, where we provided them with a lot of data that was released by the World Bank in order to debate with the, with the CDR and the other public administrations. Yeah, it's that, I mean, it's just a gargantuan task. And, and you know, I personally am I'm very thankful that, that you, that, that someone is doing it uh, because this is sort of, what has to happen when you have a an extremely opaque state that that sort of thrives on on not providing this information and so it's it's really you're doing god's work i i think it's it's super super interesting to have you on and and you know sadly we do have to wrap up uh, at this point but but i think you know your the work you do really feeds into everything uh, or can feed into into so many things uh, that are going on in the country, uh, from investigative journalism to activism, um, and so I'm sure that we're going to be, you know, hearing about you again and 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 t- speaking to you again um, as as we move forward. Thank you, Seymour. It really means a lot to me to um, to to hear that people are acknowledging this work. But I also believe that it's not about us. It's not about me in person. It's not about Gribal as an institution. This is a culture that we all need to pitch in into it. This is why everyone who's hearing this podcast, or I would recommend them that they create their own Gribal at their municipality level or in their day-to-day uh, correspondence with any administration. The more pressure we put on this state, the more requ- submitted requests of information are going significantly to them, it will push them to do the biggest chunk of the law. The law actually pushes them to publish the information in the first place. So if we are able to put more pressure on these administrations, hopefully and one day we will be able to reach uh, more of an e-governance platforms to have. Most of the time, we are trying to change the system, but this system is kind of obsolete. Let us try to find ways to ease our lives as, as far for the time being when they are still in power. So... Maybe we will not be able to change the parliament and the government in a few months. Hopefully, we will have a chance in the next elections. Hopefully, something will come up in international or regional or in geopolitics. But until then, it would be super amazing if I can drive a car with there no holes in the, in the roads. Hopefully, the electricity doesn't cut. Hopefully, I am able to manage to get my papers online, pay my bills online not to stand in a queue and try to bribe anyone to finish a document in the state. And this could happen in in e-governance platforms. And this is why, this is my call for everyone to keep an eye on what we're doing, do the same themselves. And I'm only going to finish and say that we are actually now doing two significant important things. We're collecting data on all the contractors who got contracts from Lebanese administration in the last 20 years. We're publishing this data when it's done in a few months for everyone so they can track every contract that happened if we get the data. And the second thing, we're opening our new platform also in a few months that will be monitoring every tender and procurement in the state. So one, we're breaking the monopoly 
opening these standards for pro- more po- uh, private institutions to pitch in their uh, their services uh, and two to monitor who is winning these standards why what is the amount and is there any political affiliation that is behind it uh, with that i'm going to conclude i want to thank you ben i want to thank you taimur you've been doing an awesome job uh nizar as well and you've been allowing a lot of people to understand the whereabouts of the politics in this country and you're doing the job the media is failing to do that is very kind of you asad really really appreciate it and thank you so much for coming on the program we will uh we will be back next week with another episode uh and until then i'm benjamin red i'm taimur azhari and i'm asad Debian. and this has been the lebanese politics podcast Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.